Michelle Wu vowed to be a change agent for Boston. Since taking office as mayor in November, she has overseen the clearing of tent encampments at Mass and Cass. She's worked with the MBTA to expand a free fare pilot program for bus service, and she determined that change was needed in the leadership of the Boston Public Schools. Making change can also generate resistance, and she's faced some of that, too. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine, and we are joined this week on the podcast by Mayor Michelle Wu. Welcome. Hello. It's great to be back. So you've been in office for four and a half months, but you really knew Boston city government well from a decade or so between your time on the city council and your work for Mayor Tom Menino. But even with that, I'm just wondering what has sort of caught you off guard or been most surprising uh, about the job? I think, as you say, much of it has been pretty familiar and in many ways incredibly exciting to be now rolling up my sleeves and just getting to work on so many of the ideas and issues and challenges that as a counselor I'd talked about or held oversight hearings on for many years, or even as an intern back in the day for Mayor Menino had thought about and seen some of the early beginnings of issues that we're still now coming full circle on uh, about a dozen years later. Um, Probably the most surprising part, I won't even call it surprising, probably the most different part has been really understanding how much organizational capacity matters to delivering on the implementation. We know what we need to do in a lot of cases. We know exactly when we need to do it by. But at the end of the day, when our team and city staff and all the various departments have so much on our plates and things have been done in a certain way for a period of time, it's really needing to, in some case, reorganize the structures within City Hall and what the offices are focusing on and how the reporting structures go or which departments actually should be more closely aligned than separate. But it's also building new muscle in how that organization works and what we consider and how we map out the steps and the processes of when to bring members of the public or fellow colleagues into the conversation. And so a lot of that is really thinking about how systemically we not only deliver bold, urgent policies, but have the the sustainability to keep that going and to make sure that we follow up on the new initiatives that have been announced or the new policies that have been put on the books. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, bringing in members of the public, so I, I can't help but sort of ask you a little bit about some of the members of the public that uh, have been uh, regular presences outside your door. Uh, you've had protests, uh, protesters there uh, outside your home, uh, you know, daily for weeks now, people uh, protesting the vaccine mandate for city workers and other issues. And the city council just passed an ordinance to limit the hours people can demonstrate outside residences. Uh, and you plan to sign that. Uh, but the, the issue has kind of spilled over also into this controversy over outdoor dining in the North End. And um, I know you took to Twitter to say some 
restaurant owners have been part of those protests at your house. And and you sort of said that teaming up, uh, I think one tweet with anti-vax protesters, finding every opportunity to harass people isn't the way to try to influence policy decisions. How did it I mean, how did things get so rancorous? And also, you, I'm wondering if you could talk a little about your approach you, to it. You've decided to sort of call stuff out like that when you've seen it. Some might say, as mayor, you know, don't engage. But uh, that hasn't been the approach you've taken. We are in such an interesting and intense time in our politics, not just in Boston, but across the country and across the globe right now, and that's spilling over into our local politics as well. It has been 13 weeks now that people have been outside our home starting at 7 a.m., um, even this morning, and that has an effect. I mean, it, it almost feels as if people and I, I don't just mean the people outside my house in this case. I mean, broadly, it feels like our politics has become so divided and so toxic that there's almost a normalization of feel free to say whatever you want to say and disagree and don't, quote unquote, comply. And if you just are loud enough and angry enough and hateful enough, then maybe you'll get a little bit of your way. And we see that you know, we're coming off of now a couple months later, but still pretty fresh off of a mayoral election in Boston, where the point of our democracy is that various candidates represent different ideas and visions. The public weighs in on which direction they hope to go through the many series of candidate forums and conversations and the voting booths. And then... Once that choice through our democratic process has been made, that should be how we think about the direction of our policies and actions. But there's a belief, it seems now, of, well, if we just show up and harass enough, if we just look up every possible location or come every morning to disrupt the sleep of neighbors and community members and family, eventually this person will crack, right? Eventually we'll get our way and we won't have to quote unquote comply. And I think that's similar in some ways um, tied into how some of the North End dynamic has gone as well. We had a full process for how this decision was to be made. And it was a very controversial topic in the neighborhood. I'll tell you that as I was running for mayor, not a single other community brought up outdoor dining as a major quality of life issue, but in the North End, it was pervasive on the top of people's minds that it was a huge disruption of daily life with such a large percentage of the neighborhood streets uh, used for outdoor dining and the impacts that that had on a relatively small residential community. And so we had a several months long process. There was a task force that had representation from residents, community leaders, and restaurants. There were multiple public meetings that anyone could come and speak and testify at. And then we arrived at a decision. And this policy was meant to take into account all the different positions that people had. And, and now at this point, after that decision has been communicated to say, well, we're just not going to comply and we're going to work together with some of the same people who are still trying to protest vaccination policies and swell this opposition to just generate enough noise that we can get our way. It's simply not how our democracy 
is supposed to work. And it's also unhealthy for the vast majority of people who want to participate in our democracy, who want to have a say and who get crowded out when everything is toxic and loud and oriented around this. Now, I understand, I'm not trying to generalize across the board at all opposition or um, demonstrations or protests. People have been going through so much and our restaurant owners have been hanging on by a thread with the pandemic. But there are processes and there are limits that have to be set. And so when we needed to have a press conference to communicate the next steps, and we knew that people had been organizing alongside those who already come and disrupt every event possible and outside my house, then we needed a space where people could be heard in communicating that. And that is what we, what we chose. There is not an unfettered right to be able to not only say whatever version of language you wanna say, but also to do so in people's faces all the time so that they can't be heard. That is simply not the type of politics that we will uphold in Boston. And, and you've decided to sort of engage and, and just be very direct in uh, on social media and other places, or I don't want to say playfully say, no, if you think I'm going to resign because of this, you know, it's a, uh, defiant, I guess I would say, maybe is that what uh, it, it characterizes some of your, your response. I'm in uncharted territory, both in terms of where we are as a society right now and just the level of discord everywhere, the level of stress from the pandemic that still is manifesting in all different ways across our interactions with each other and and in community. But we also are in a moment where people aren't used to seeing certain faces in certain roles in leadership or aren't used to a certain pace of action or decision-making from city government or the public sector. And I know that will take time. And I know there are many people who would say, you know, this is unbecoming and the mayor should be above any sort of rancor and just, um, you know, not elevate the, the, the back and forth or don't get into it. I, I am very aware though that there are many people watching what's happening. Young people who are thinking about whether or not public service is for them. Women and women of color in leadership positions who face similar hate and toxicity. And I am choosing to set boundaries for my staff, for myself, and to make hopefully a shift in the dynamic where we cannot tolerate people feeling like it's okay to harass someone until they give in. It's just simply destructive for our communities in so many ways. And so I am going to protect my team my staff members who also have to absorb the impacts of, of when this hateful discourse spills over into the local level. And we need to model that at the end of the day, people are still human beings. We should disagree. We should have open conversation. We should protest and demonstrate. Boston is the home of that activism, but there need to be limits. And that doesn't mean that whenever, wherever, People have the right to be in in everyone's faces all the time. Gotcha. 
So let's let's uh, talk about some of the issues on on your plate besides this one, which is certainly an important one about sort of just how we go about the business of of dealing with issues. Um, so what you know, one of your favorite topics, the MBTA, and uh, you're a regular rider of the T, and I think. One thing that I've just been struck by is that you've really changed the narrative on the role of Boston's mayor uh, with the system. Clearly, there's really no population more affected by or dependent on the T than residents of Boston. But it's a state-run agency, and Boston mayors have, you know, historically, you know, more or less waved off, you know, deep involvement in its workings. And that's not been the case for you. I I, I want to talk about your efforts to sort of push this uh, fare-free bus. Uh, service. But I just wonder, first of all, along with your kind of hat as kind of a person deeply interested in policy, kind of a policy wonk, is is just the fact that you're a regular T rider, do you think that has played a role in driving your interest in this? Because I think that also, frankly, distinguishes you from, I don't know, most of the mayors that I've seen over the last few decades. Absolutely. I rode the orange line in today. I was on the orange line over the weekend as it was being diverted because of the construction project and saw that the shuttle buses actually were coaches, which meant that it couldn't fit as many people as MBTA buses. And so what I like to say is that city government is special because we do the big and the small, but we do big things by getting the small things right. And there are small things that matter so much to people's day-to-day lives that you really can't fully understand how much it matters and what they are unless you're experiencing it directly or in constant community and and having folks who are experiencing it directly shaping decision-making. And so every time I ride the T, I come back with a list of a couple things that I feel like we should be working on or changing or something that I'm just tucking away in the in the back of my mind. And I think it's important to share how our daily lives are directly connected to policy. So if I'm on the train and some issue comes up or I know that there's a spot in the a patch in the Wi-Fi coverage between Forest Hills and just after Green Street, that kind of information matters as we're thinking about how the digital divide works and, and where people can uh, access access their their work and connectivity. It matters to know how the delays pile up as you're trying to run around and pick up your kids and get to work and, and all of that. And so there is you know our, our city is fundamentally a city of opportunity that is not connected fully. So if we can truly open up every opportunity, every job, every neighborhood amenity, every destination to to people all across Boston and beyond, then we step into our full potential. And the literal connectivity of our city depends on public transportation and how we get around. Right. And um, just just share a little bit your kind of longer term vision for the work you've been advocating uh, with the T. The fare-free bus service now, uh, this program on three lines seems to be going well. Uh, what What's sort of your longer term vision? There's sort of competing with this idea of making the T fair free has been this other idea of of having sort of it means tested and and having reduced uh, fares for low income riders i think even 
uh, Jim Aloisi, the former state transportation secretary, a big fan of your work, has been more in that camp. Um, where do you where do you want to see this this go? Well, it's it's pretty fun to be full circle on this because this was the first venue where I ever spoke publicly about the idea of free public transportation. And that was on the podcast about three years ago at this point. Um, I remember the shock in your voice as we were discussing that, just kind of throwing the idea out there. And, you know, there's, there's a big difference between just talking about an idea and then actualizing it. And I'm really excited that we've started to show that the idea is possible because we've demonstrated that even small steps in the right direction have a transformational impact. I was on a meeting with a number of school leaders recently, just a Zoom to check in. And um, one of the first things that came up in terms of how the community was doing was someone mentioning that the free buses are so impactful for students and for young people that even from within our school system, the impact of the MBTA working with the city on three bus lines has been transformational. And we see that across so many parts of our residents' lives. I think the next steps here are, you know, we're using federal funding, the ARPA funds, to help make it possible to fund these three routes for two years. The goal is to prove the case for larger and sustained investment. We're also working with other sister cities in the area on bus routes that cross municipal boundaries and hope that much of the work that was done leading to this point with our three bus routes to sort out federal policy and the six month time limit, which we were able to work through to have a full two year pilot, that that has cleared the way for other such actions to happen much more quickly and much more smoothly. Ultimately, bus service is the best place to remove barriers to access and eliminating fares on buses means that we not only take one of the biggest steps towards equity in the system, because here is where we see tremendous gaps in the experience between communities of color and uh, white riders in terms of the length of time on buses and the delays and the congestion. The act of allowing people to board through all doors immediately speeds up service because you don't have to wait as long at each stop for the the queuing and people to pay. It also means that we are removing the threat or the risk of racial profiling or other disparities in how proof of payment plans would be implemented in in the T's current plans for for their AFC 2.0 rollout. And so there's a lot of benefit collectively, and it's for a relatively small investment when it comes to bus service. We are already heavily subsidizing bus service and paying for fare collection. And so removing and eliminating that while benefiting from the cost efficiencies of speeding up our routes is a win-win all around. And I don't see that as a conflict or an either-or choice between free fares and means-tested discounts for riders. We should be doing all that we can in the moment as many avenues, as many angles as possible, and to just keep getting closer to removing the barriers that can boost ridership and support our equity, economic mobility, and climate. I want to ask a little about the uh, schools 
and we're you're embarking on a, a search for a new superintendent. And without getting into kind of the issues regarding the superintendent herself, just can you help help us understand what is it that you think the schools are really lacking or what's the essential change that that we need to see happen? We've had this state review that has identified broad problems. Um, what is it, you know, the sort of top one or two things we need to do to make the schools uh, sort of get the schools on track? Our schools, similar to so many areas, are a place where we're not lacking in the richness of resources in our city. We're not lacking in the eagerness to really make this the the leading example of public education in the country. And we're not lacking in knowing what to do either. It's really a matter of implementation, getting the small things right, delivering day-to-day on the experience for families to rebuild trust with our school communities and to have the coordination for all of the resources across Boston to truly be invested in and help support progress in our schools. So as we're searching for a new leader for the district, I keep emphasizing that this is not about finding one magical person who's going to suddenly be able to fix everything. We need a whole team in place. We need a whole leadership team. Each category of of major initiatives in our school system could use a superintendent in and of themselves, right? Just around operations and facilities, just around academics and supports, just around community outreach and building connections with our families, just around community partnerships or social and emotional supports, especially right now in such a time of deep stress and and challenges with mental health. And so we have to emphasize how much there is to do and that we need helping hands, but a coordinated vision to get that done. And so we're going to put forward concrete plans, even as we're in the midst of our transition. And Superintendent Caselius has made clear that she is not letting up from now until the end of the school year. We're looking at major facilities, plans. Our school buildings do not reflect the value and the potential that our students should have access to. Um, We're looking at how we really wrap around from outside the school department silo, all the city services that our young people and their families need. And, but can you just say what's the, it it is going to take that sort of more system-wide change. What, What has sort of been ailing it for so long? The state report said, you know, there's no coherent strategy for lifting up the sort of these group of uh, low-performing schools, uh, 30-some schools that are most distressing. And, uh, you know, they've identified that when you remove the exam school students, the graduation rate for the rest of the high school students hovers around 55%. I mean, that sort of, frankly, strikes some people as a, a failed operation. If you are only getting half of Boston young people outside of the selective admission schools to graduate from high school... I mean, is it fair to say it's really a a system in crisis? Yes, absolutely. And I think in some ways that's the 
most important change that we need to make is urgency. I know from being a mom in the system, right, the first thing I think about every day is BPS and needing to get the kids ready and dressed and packed up and out the door. I've been involved with the district for many years before that, raising my sister as her legal guardian through BPS as well. And so we cannot keep moving at the usual speed of government. We have to move at the pace of our families and the, the, the urgency that these issues demand. Now, I, I, you know, even though it is urgent, I actually feel we have a moment of opportunity unlike any other right now. The resources are there in terms of an infusion and once in a generation opportunity from the federal government. The energy and the eagerness for all sectors across the city to get involved and support our school system is there. We need coordination. And I know from my part, what the mayor's office and, and what the mayor should be able to offer is full-throated support to chase down whatever resources BPS needs to wrap around and have accountability to moving things forward and to create the political space for our school system to do what they need to do instead of a model where the mayor's office kind of hopes that we will see as little political drama as possible from the schools and we make decisions accordingly and shut down changes accordingly. It is the job of the mayor to help assess and make the case for the political will to be there so that our school system, our superintendent and the school committee can make the big changes they need to make. So I, I'm just curious with everything on your plate, I'd love to hear sort of what, what do you do to unwind? And I, I, I guess I have one question, which is I see on social media a lot, you're, you're, you're sharing uh, what's up each day with Wordle. And I'm wondering, is that what you do to unwind? Because I do it, but I find it often just kind of frays my nerves when I'm getting like close to running out of guesses. So uh, I don't know, is that, does that relax you? <laughs> yes, Wordle's a very enjoyable, I don't know, usually five to seven minutes of time. Um, it does get stressful. There have been moments where I forgot about it and then at 11.45 <laughs> wanted to get it in before the midnight switch over. That gets, that gets a little stressful. But I have decided that doing it at the end of the day just gives me one way to kind of clear my brain and think really hard about some words. Um, and I try to, I, I aim for three. I usually get it somewhere between three or four. This week has been quite complicated, um, but I would say um, I would say the extra time that I have usually goes into family and being with the kids. We love picking one of our parks to go and run around in. It's often the Arboretum or Franklin Park, a place where they can get muddy and we can see the brook or the hawks or something something beautiful about nature. Um, we like to go hiking wherever we can. And I now have a, I'm sitting in my office now. There's a piano in the corner of the office. So when I have a few minutes during the day, that, that's where it goes I've, to. I've seen about that. I don't know. Maybe we could, I don't know. We should have you go over there and like take us out with something. But I don't know. That may be a little tough to do. Well, Mayor Michelle Wu, thanks again so much for 
talking to us on the podcast once again. And we look forward to uh, speaking with you uh, again. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. We will see you again next week.